Welcome back to Sustainably Influenced. I'm your host, Bianca Foley. In this season, we're discussing the relationship between the tech space and sustainability. Technology has the power to revolutionize the way we live and do things. And this has never been more important than in the current climate crisis. In recent years, the world has faced increasing challenges related to global warming, loss of biodiversity and resource depletion. However, technology has the potential to provide solutions and mitigate the impact of these problems. Advances in areas such as renewable energy, energy efficiency, sustainable transportation and smart cities can help us to transition to a more sustainable future. As businesses set ever more ambitious environmental, social and governance goals, their sustainability and technology strategies need to become more tightly aligned. Over the course of this season, I'll be diving into these strategies, speaking to disruptors and free thinkers in the industry who are using technology-based solutions to combat the climate crisis. Hello and welcome back to the last episode of the season. I don't know how that's gone so quick, actually. It feels like I just started recording yesterday. But today's episode is one of the more difficult topics to discuss. But I really wanted to make sure that I was highlighting people in a season where people may not be featured. So today's episode is entitled, Is Tech Separating Human Rights from Humans? But I really want to know how we can put an end or slow the possibility of this happening through intentional engagement and building responsive, responsible systems. I'll be honest with you, I'm not as kind of informed as I should be maybe on this area. And I'm glad that I took the time to do the research because it means I can help share this with somebody else who may be in the same situation as I am or I was. I was really interested speaking to today's guest as well. And I think that it's a slightly more techie, jargon-led episode. But if you get to the end, well done, because then you've done the whole season. So well done you. So one area that we really need to look at in particular is social sustainability, which refers to the ability of society to maintain or improve the well-being of its members over time, while also ensuring social justice and equity. It involves meeting the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Social sustainability encompasses so many different things and like this whole range of factors, including access to basic services such as healthcare, education, housing, as well as equitable access to economic opportunities. Sorry, that was really hard to say. And protection from discrimination and injustice. It also involves promoting social cohesion, community engagement and participatory kind of like decision making processes that empower individuals and groups to contribute to the development of their own communities. In essence, social sustainability is about creating and maintaining social systems that promote the long term well-being of individuals and communities, while also ensuring that everyone has an equal opportunity to participate and benefit from these systems. In this episode, we'll be discussing the ESG framework, and that stands for Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance. In depth, I want to say more so quite at length, maybe not in depth, but yeah. And more specifically, we want to talk about the S, which is that social component of the ESG, which refers to a set of standards for a company's behaviour used by socially conscious investors to screen potential investments. 
There isn't actually a framework that helps companies to identify or prioritise or even measure their impact on humans. So in looking at that, I feel like we're really highlighting something and today's guest is doing that in such great detail. The lack of clear metrics and framework has resulted in deprioritizing social issues, which means social initiatives are unfocused and don't really become a board level issue, which unfortunately means it's not really going to be integrated into business practices. Therefore, it's really, really critical to create a framework to protect humans and a proposed framework modelled on the scope framework that defines the E part of that ESG. So there's four scopes, scope one, two, three and four. The goal is to kind of provide a structure to help companies better understand where to focus their attention and how their company impacts human rights holistically. I want to just explain here because we're all about making things accessible and easy to understand and digest on Sustainably Influenced. So I want to go into a little bit depth as to what the scopes are. So these are more business level, how I'm kind of relating to these. So for those that don't understand or don't know what the scope emissions are, your scope one emissions are direct emissions from sources that are owned or controlled by the organisation, such as emissions from on-site combustion of like things like fossil fuels or emissions from vehicles owned by the organisation. Scope two emissions are indirect emissions. So that's consumption of things like purchased electricity or heat or anything else that's used within the organisation. Scope three emissions, they're indirect ones, but they're the other indirect emissions that occur in the value chain of the organisation, such as kind of emissions from the production of the goods or services, business travel, employee commuting, things like that. And then four... This is a really broad category and it kind of encompasses every other indirect emission that there could be that occurs outside of the organisation's immediate value chain, such as, I'm just trying to think here, so such as things like the use and disposal of the organisation's products or emissions from the extraction and production of the materials. So I hope that that puts that into a little bit more perspective. You can also Google what scope one to four emissions are and there are a million different websites out there that will provide probably a more succinct definition. Technology has brought about significant progress and benefits to our world but it's also creating new challenges that are affecting human rights. In some cases technology is separating humans from their rights making it harder for people to access them. One of the primary ways in which technology is separating humans from their rights is through the rise of automation and artificial intelligence. Now, in the first episode of this season, we spoke about AI and how it's creating a more traceable supply chain and how it's actually enabling better consumption. But I want to just mention that not all AI is going to be positive. These technologies are being used to replace human labour, which is causing job displacement and making it harder for people to find work. We saw this with the Industrial Revolution and things like that. So this isn't new. This is just a new form of innovation or technological advancement that is then removing jobs and making it harder for people to work. As a result of this, though, people are losing their economic rights and are struggling to make ends meet. This trend, dare I say trend, is not only occurring in lower skilled jobs, but also in professional spaces as well that were once considered safe from automisation. So think a lot of like admin roles. 
Another way that tech is facilitating this is, and I wanted to mention this, but it's because maybe partly to do with what I do for work, but it's reducing privacy. Social media platforms, search engines and other digital tools are all collecting data on users. We know this. There's been loads in the news. And it's all kind of been used for targeted advertising and other purposes. Just think, every time you Google something completely random, don't you see an advert for it pop up? If you're somebody who uses Instagram, if you're scrolling through stories or through feed posts, you'll see targeted advertising coming up. And that's whether you're with somebody who's Googled it, it all ties in. There's a lot going on in the background that if you really thought about it, you probably wouldn't use your phone or any form of data and would maybe just live in a bunker. But we live in a Western society where we need these things to be able to function. This data collection can be intrusive and even dangerous as personal information can be used for identity theft, cyberbullying and other malicious activities. And as a result, people are losing their right to privacy and are struggling to keep their personal information safe. Tech's also removing that access to information and that is a human right as well. With the rise of social media, people are really, really increasingly relying on algorithmic feeds to determine what information they receive. This can lead to a really narrow perspective on the world as these algorithms work in a way where they prioritise content that confirms a user's existing beliefs. So in some cases, this can even lead to the spread of false information, propaganda, which can be used to manipulate people and influence their behaviour. Now let's go back to speaking about the social aspects of ESG. So just to remind you again, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and um, Corporate Governance or just Governance. And these goals are being implemented to help companies identify, prioritise and measure their impact on humans. This framework helps companies to consider their social implications of their operations and to take steps to ensure that they're not causing harm to people. By prioritising these social goals, companies can actually improve their relations with employees, customers and other stakeholders, which can lead to really long-term success. One of the primary social goals of ESG is to ensure that companies are providing safe and healthy working conditions for employees. This includes measures to prevent accidents, reduce exposure to hazardous materials and provide adequate training and equipment. Companies that prioritise this goal are likely to have more engaged and productive employees, which can lead to higher profits and a better reputation. Another social goal of ESG is to promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace. This means ensuring that employees of all backgrounds have equal opportunities to advance and contribute to the company's success. Companies that prioritise diversity are likely to have a more innovative and creative workforce, which can lead to better products and services. So ESG also promotes ethical business practices, which is great. And this is why I wanted to bring it up, because this can then help companies to avoid harmful activities such as bribery, corruption and human rights abuses. Companies that prioritise ethical behaviour are likely to have a better relationship with their customers, suppliers, other stakeholders. And generally, it's just going to build greater trust and loyalty. One area where we're seeing the use of technology to actually improve rights is in supply chain processes. And as I said before, we've spoken about how technology is being used to better these processes a few times on this season. Previous guests have mentioned how tech is improving that traceability and the integration of AI, the improvement of supply chain processes to enable more sustainable consumption. But we can't talk about people without discussing employee welfare and reporting. How can we create a framework for defining them and measuring that S? Today's guest is Eleanor Fawnhall-Debnam, 
founder of Labour Solutions, who will be able to explain just that. They are providing a new scalable approach to managing and preventing supply chain risks by engaging workers and suppliers using technology. In this conversation, we discuss the negative consequences of unresolved grievances such as stress, anxiety and depression in the workplace. And these can all lead to physical health issues. So I just want people to be mindful of that. It's a very techie-led conversation and we're not touching on anything too deep, but I just want to make people aware. So let's get into the conversation. So please tell us all about Labour Solutions, what it is that you do, why, just how, everything. Yeah, so essentially we help uh, big brands better understand their human rights risk by providing tools that help connect, educate, and engage supply chain workers on the ground. So essentially we're looking at ways that we can improve human resources to improve human rights. We know that a lot of the issues that are happening within supply chains where you hear about forced labor or these strikes or things that you hear that are kind of coming out in the news, a lot of them have to do with poor human resources or people who are under-resourced. And so our job is to kind of help them do that. And we do that through technology. And so workers engage with our tool using our app. And then uh, as they use it, we get data that helps factories or farms or mines better understand their workforce and respond to them and engage them and educate them. And then brands get better data about what's going on in their supply chain and can ensure that there's good systems in place. I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. I think it's, it's really interesting to see because we were chatting offline and not realizing how many times people are almost taken out of that conversation. And as you were saying, you made a really interesting point about your business. I don't know if you want to share that. I've kind of gone, I think anybody who's worked in sustainability or social sustainability kind of for a while, eventually everybody gets burnt out or jaded or kind of starts feeling like, what am I doing this for, right? You work really hard in a forced labor case or you work really hard with a a company on helping them solve a challenge and then you see them use their marketing money in a different way, right? And something that's not positive. And you're like, well, why does my job exist, right? The whole, you know, all of these issues that we're talking about are issues that are endemic to our economy, right? Most of these companies that are out there in the world have shareholders and shareholders, you know, the point of a company is to pay shareholders dividends, right? And that's your fiduciary responsibility. And as a result, that means that perhaps brands don't put people first, they put money first, right? Not perhaps, they do. I think if you've worked in sustainability for a long time, it eventually becomes very frustrating because essentially our economy is set up in a way that always and will always value money and profits over over people or the environment. And so I think, you know, when you work in in this industry, eventually you're like, well, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? What's the point? I think what's kind of cool and it's kind of been coming out recently are a bunch of new laws around due diligence and understanding your supply chain and being responsible for what happens in the production of your products, whether it be harm to the environment or harm to people. And that's a really important thing because law is one of the only things that can kind of work against general business practices, like how our economy is structured. And so I think that in combination with a probably a more powerful force, which is ESG, right? This idea that investors are looking for businesses that promote environmental, social, and governance sustainability is changing the way our economy works if done correctly. 
But I think, and I think you probably have heard this a lot in your podcast, we really focus a lot on the environmental side of things, right? Because it's easy to talk about. It's easy to measure. It's exciting. You know, trees' feelings don't change. A tree in Indonesia is the same thing as a tree in Brazil. Saving water here is the same thing as saving water there. And so there's these great outcomes, super easy to measure, or so they say, right? And you can offset it, right? So you don't actually have to fix it. You can say like, oh, I know I have these really bad chemicals coming out here, but until I fix it, I will offset it with something else. Well, it turns out like on the social side of things, it doesn't work that way, right? You can't be like, oh, I have forced labor in Ethiopia. So I'm just going to invest in a few schools in Kenya. Like that doesn't offset it. And so uh, people find it really complicated and hard to talk about. It's not the same everywhere. And as a result, we don't have boards talking about the S and ESG. We don't have investors talking about the S and ESG. And it just gets lost. And so I think in order for my company to grow, in order for lots of other companies around me and, and people working on different initiatives to grow, we really have to focus on growing what I said to you, right? Growing the pie, not our piece of the pie. So we really need to like pull out the pie of social sustainability, get people to talk about it, have better frameworks, have ways that like the average person can go, oh, I understand this about this company. And so I don't know how familiar you or your listeners are with the idea of scope. Okay, so in emissions, right? You'll often hear companies talk about their scope one, their scope two, and their scope three emissions. And what they mean by that is like scope one is what their direct emissions are, right? From the building that they're in or cars that they drive. And then scope two would be part of their supply chain and so on and so forth. We need to apply the same framework to the social side of things. So the way I want to look at it is that you have your S, your scope one S, which is how do you treat your employees? What is the human rights of your workplace? Are your employees engaged? Do they feel respected? Are women treated fairly? That should be scope one, huge criteria for any company. And I think we often see, at least in my field, people who are really focused on their supply chains are not really focused on what's going on in their main workforce. And so I think it's really important first that we talk about that. Then if we go upstream, so where does your product come from? How did it get here? We can start talking about your scope two, which would be your supply chain, your your tier one. So where are your products kind of put together? Where do all the pieces come together to make your product? And how are those employees treated? And that should be your scope your scope two and your scope three would be, you know, your tier two. So where do your materials come from? And then finally kind of down to your raw materials. So the extraction of the materials that are used to make your product, when they're extracted, how does that impact the communities around it? Right. And so to have this framework to think about all of these things, then enables people to talk about it and then enables them to set goals and eventually work on it. But there's also the downstream, which is what happens to your product after you make it. So your scope two would be delivery or marketing, right? We see all sorts of awful marketing out there, right? That is like not, is not positive. You know, I was in a conversation with a beauty brand a few days ago, and they were talking about how their marketing team has taken on the idea of social sustainability as part of their remit, right? Like we need to promote good things in the world. And that's great, but I never hear that, right? That's really unusual. So how, again, do we talk about human rights and marketing? Or how is your product used? Is it used for harm? And then finally, how is it disposed, 
right? Is it disposed in a way that creates harm? Is it chemical waste that's creating harm for a community? Is it trash or whatever else it may be? I want to start putting this out there into the world and having different experts who talk about different parts of this, right? Obviously, there's experts on marketing and human rights come up with ways that we can measure it or talk about ways that we can measure it. Because I know we all are measuring these things, but we're not talking about it in a uniform way that enables us to really understand how companies are performing. I think it's so interesting because it is almost from the other side of the coin and looking at things from a different perspective. We know that we're looking at these ESG goals. We know that we're looking at environmental, social governance goals, but we're not speaking about the different parts of them in a way that is cohesive and I guess uniform across the board. Are there a sort of any particular industries that are more prone in your experience to causing human rights issues through technology? Or are there any particular, I wouldn't say like more supply chain areas then? I think when we answer this question and kind of think about it, and it's interesting enough of what you just said around traceability. And because of these new laws that I've been talking about, right, we are the industry as a whole is spending literally billions of dollars identifying risk. We know what the risks are. I mean, we know what they are. We, there's sexual harassment happening in almost every company in the world. We know that's a risk. We don't need to go study it. We know it's a risk. We know that forced labor is a risk amongst migrant worker populations. We know what the risks are. We need to stop measuring them and start like actually doing something about them, right? We spend so much time wondering what's our impact or have we had impact here? Have we done this, right? And it's, it's like, no, but you have to do something to have impact. And so I would like to see our industry stop using technology to just measure things, stop using technology just to uncover things and actually start using it to, to solve problems. And I think particularly in human rights, I think to the point of the name of your podcast, right? Our human being taken out of human rights. The issue is, is that we want to boil humans down to a number. We want to boil them down to a feeling or to a risk factor, right? And it just isn't possible. Humans are dynamic. It doesn't work that way. It's just so reductive, I find. And it's, as you said, we measure all these things, but then what do we do with this data? Impact can only be measured as long as you're then putting action on top of that and using that data that you've collected to then, I guess, invoke change. Well, it's actually quite like counterproductive, right? Because what's actually happening is, particularly when we talk about humans, what we're doing is when we measure risk, we're typically saying that we're measuring the risk of our suppliers and the people that they employ. So what we're doing is we're weaponizing their workers against them. Like that doesn't turn out well. So one of two things happens, right? Either I go to my workers and I don't promote this thing because essentially what they're saying is like, hey, when you don't like your boss, call your boss's client. Like that's an insane incentive structure. And so either I go to my workers and when they come and report, say a sexual harassment claim to me, I say, hey, I'm so sorry that happened, but I don't want to fix it. And I don't want to hear about it because if I hear about it, I have to report it, which then makes my you know, reporting score lower, which means that we may not get business and therefore you may not have a job later. So shh, don't tell me about it. And that's like so counterproductive to what we want to happen. We want all of these things to come to the top. We want to encourage people to talk about it. And part of what we do at our company is that we're trying to flip that, right? We're trying to flip this idea of like measuring people as risk and instead looking at them as, hey, you know what? This company is under-resourced. They don't have the right tools. They don't know how to deal with these really serious human resources issues they have. And maybe if we enter in this company with a place of trust, 
they can then pass on that trust to their employees and then hear about the problems so they can actually solve them. So I think technology, particularly now, is all about, hey, let's use like worker surveys or let's use worker feedback to like understand where our risks are. And it's counterproductive. And also it doesn't actually work because if you trust your employer, if you think your employer is great, you're likely to give them a worse score on something than if you don't trust them, right? Think about the difference between staying in a one-star hotel versus a five-star hotel, right? The higher your expectations, the more your demands. And therefore, like, you know, you're less likely. It's why TripAdvisor, you may find a five-star TripAdvisor hotel that's actually a one-star hotel and a five-star real hotel that's a two-star TripAdvisor hotel, right? It doesn't work. And so I think we have to like stop shooting for this make-believe thing. I think that's a really clever analogy because... We don't look at these things in this way. And I think so many people see things in terms of a scoring system. But if the way that you're scoring things is broken, how can you make it better? I mean, are there any other solutions that you see out there that could be enforced within the workforce, which then enables that kind of the S of ESG to take priority? Yeah, so my specialty is definitely in the human resources kind of a place of this, right? Obviously, there's lots of other S and ESG things happening. But in the human resources side of things, what we find is asking the question, would you recommend this workplace to a friend or family member is the most dynamic question you can get. And is really comparable and really relative and not scary, right? You're not asking a fact that now workers are scared about they don't know the answer to, right? You're asking how somebody feels, even if they have high expectations for their facility, they're likely to give them a good score, right? Even if there's things they feel like their facility needs to work on, they still trust that they are working on it. So they may get low scores other places, but this score is really good. And it's interesting because it sounds like you're factoring in not just the quantitative data, but the qualitative data as well. And bringing that in kind of that feeling aspect as well, which allows people to be people, allows humans to feel Because I think so much as we were speaking about offline, we've got this element of AI taking over and people being reduced down to a score. And I think in doing that, you're allowing almost a much more open conversation. Please, please correct me if I'm wrong. Sort of. But I mean, I would agree with that. But I would also go further to say, usually human rights is being violated by other humans. And human is important in that, right? Like, humans are creative. So one of the things we find is that if you go and ask a question about, say, something like, do you have access to your passport or do you have access to a fire extinguisher? The humans that are manipulating people are just going to learn that they should give them the passports, but they're going to manipulate them in another way, right? They're going to find another way to be evil or, you know, there's going to find another way to manipulate them. So asking specific question or factual based questions really actually aids the manipulators or people causing harm versus asking questions about experience, right? So a better question might be, do you feel safe? Whoa, now we've really like blown up. Now we're talking about all sorts of different things. And again, it's not asking me about a fact or something that I feel because most of these people we're talking about are, are really vulnerable, right? And so maybe they didn't pass. It feels like a test when you ask a, like a very yes or no factual based question. Instead, we want it to be a, a conversation. We really want to under uncover like more that's happening. And so to, you know, kind of go on that example of, do you feel safe? What's so interesting is, you know, we see that question be asked and the results that come from it. Most employers that I work with, (laughs) they see like when they get a low score and do you feel safe? They're like, oh my God, what happened? So recently we were working with an employer who got a low score on, do you feel safe at work? 
And they were like, but I don't understand. Like we just passed three safety audits. So that means they had three external people come in and look at everything that's going on and say they were doing okay. But workers were expressing that they didn't feel safe. And so why? And what it ended up being was that there was harassment happening right outside of the factory. So as soon as the workers left the work to catch left work to catch the bus, they were being harassed. And so this fix of this is super simple, right? Bringing in the bus inside of the gates of the factory drastically improves these workers' lives. And it's this whole point of if we just listen to people, we can do really small things that don't cost us anything that have huge impacts on their lives. I think that's really lovely. And as I've said time and time again in this conversation, it's just that it's all about changing your thinking. And I think so many of us just don't see anything from another point of view. We're so very fixed in our beliefs and our mindset where we think this is how it's done, therefore it should always be done that way. As you said, it takes absolutely nothing to listen to someone and change that pattern of behavior to enable somebody to feel, for example, safe in their workplace or safe outside of their workplace. It's such an amazing thing that you're doing. I just, I feel like I don't want to reduce it down to just one point. It's kind of the point though, right? You almost shouldn't have to know about what I do. What you should know about is how... Mm. like one of the things that I hate when people come and ask me, they're like, what brand should I buy from? Who should I buy from? Who should I do this? Absolutely. I have opinions. Absolutely. I've met lots of brand sustainability officers and like know who is actually working towards solutions, who's not, but ultimately it shouldn't be the consumer's responsibility. It needs to be the brand's responsibility. And the way we do that is by, passing really incredible laws. Thank you, the EU, by advocating that investors look at more things than just a profit, right? And we do that, again, through laws and by providing incentives for the economy to change. And so what we do shouldn't really be something that like the average consumer needs to know about. What they need to know about is, are there infrastructures in place through policies and whatever else that help me ensure that my clothes or my computer or the minerals for this thing I'm using wasn't done with slave labor or wasn't done with people who are being abused, right? And so it's almost unimportant what I do in that sense, right? Like in the sense of like the average consumer doesn't need to know. And by focusing on what I do, which is I see sometimes what brands will do, we'll focus on what I do or a women's empowerment program here or an education program there. We're distracting people from the point, which is that businesses should be good to the people that they employ. This was a really sort of interesting topic for me. I've come from the corporate space myself and thinking about how things are done in a larger organization and using the information that Eleanor spoke about, I feel a little bit like, hmm, these are things that can be done across the board. It's not just something where it's going to be used in supply chain or for different suppliers in the fashion space. It could literally be applied to every industry across the world. I never thought about the ways that the companies aren't thinking about welfare of their workers before this. New laws and regulations aimed at reducing human rights abuses throughout supply chains were recently passed or are proposed across the world. And with so many of these workers that we're speaking about being based in the global south, where it's actually been documented that these inequities in both workers' rights and the working conditions are happening, I have the hope that these new laws and processes well, with these new laws and process changes, we'll see an improvement. However, I think the social aspects of this ESG framework 
provide a structure for companies to identify, prioritise and measure their impact. By prioritising goals such as safe and healthy working conditions, diversity and inclusion and even ethical behaviour, companies can improve their relationship with their investors and contribute to long-term success. As technology continues to advance, it's so crucial that companies remain vigilant and prioritise human rights to ensure that technology is used to benefit all people. Thank you so much for listening to this season. I hope that you found it as interesting as I have and I'll be back very soon for a new season. But for now, you can subscribe and listen back to previous episodes of Sustainably Influenced on all good podcast platforms. You can follow at Sustainably Influenced on TikTok and Instagram. I'm Bianca Foley. Thank you for listening. This season of Sustainably Influenced was produced by Content is Queen, sound editor Amber Miller, research assistant Toyo Douglas and presented by Bianca Foley.